Rich and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Well, happy Saturday to all of you out there listening. It is Arizona Sports Saturday. Steve Zinsmeister with you. My radio partner, Mitch Farrell, is out sick today. All the best to him and hope that he's back and healthy for next week's show. He's missing out on a good one, too. This is one I know he wanted to be here. So Mitch and I have been doing post-game shows. I've been calling them post-game parties, actually, for all of the NLDS games as the Diamondbacks were taking on the Dodgers. And let me tell you, it is the most fun that we've had here at the radio station in a long time. And I know that you guys are excited about it, too. I cannot believe that the Arizona Diamondbacks are playing for a pennant for the first time in 16 years. I cannot believe that they're eight games away from a potential championship. The only team in town with a championship. And they could get another one? That doesn't really compute. I was just talking with somebody in the newsroom before the show. And they said, you know, honestly, if they had won 75 games and competed for a wild card but didn't quite get one, I would have been like, yeah, all right, that's what this team is. I'm okay with that. We made strides. We got better. We've got young talent. Let, let's look towards next year. And it and it's sad to look back on that and think, you know, that was really the expectation, but that's realistic. And now you're one of the two teams remaining in the National League, despite winning 84 games. Bob Costas wanted to remind us of that statistic as many times as possible throughout the Dodgers series. That the Diamondbacks won 84 games and the Dodgers won 100 or whatever it was. It's it's crazy. I'm right there with you. But now let's talk about setting realistic expectations for this team. Because when you're eight games away from a championship, I think there is a bit of a reset button on the expectations. Do the Diamondbacks now have to live up to the challenge of trying to win a championship? Now, the obvious answer is, yeah, of course, right? You get to the World Series, potentially. I mean, right now, I'm not one to put the cart before the horse again here, but uh, you got to get through the Phillies, and that's... No small task, obviously. We're going to dive into why throughout today's show. But nobody expected them to be here. Not the Phillies, the Diamondbacks. So what are fair expectations going forward? I think when you beat teams as good as the Brewers and the Dodgers, those expectations start to morph. They change. Now all of a sudden, you have to live up to something entirely different. And looking at comparisons between the Diamondbacks and the Phillies is really interesting. And we're going to be doing it all day, but this series throughout the season, the Phillies are 4-3 and three against the Diamondbacks. They played seven times. They played three times back in May and four times in June. Now, I would venture to tell you that the Diamondbacks are a vastly different team here in September and October than they were in June. Way different. I think the key difference to me is the bullpen. Ryan Thompson, Kevin Ginkle, and Paul Seawald are the main guys out of the pen so far. Joe Mantiply's played a big role, there's no doubt. Andrew Salfrank's been great since getting called up. Um, But this bullpen is really entirely different than it was back in June. Remember at the beginning of the season, you had guys uh, like Scott McGuff, who came over from overseas. I think he had 69 saves in the last two years overseas. Miguel Castro gets signed, and he's still around, by the way. Um, They both are, but Miguel Castro was signed with incentives in his contract for closing out games. That's a guy they thought, okay, he also could end up being our closer. Here we are in October. And he's, I think he pitched in the one postseason game that I remember. 
And you brought in Andrew Chafin in free agency. That was your big bullpen addition in free agency was bringing back Andrew Chafin. He's no longer around. They traded him, ironically, to the Brewers, who also didn't use him in the postseason. So you're looking at a bullpen now that is a lockdown closer in Paul Seawald that you traded for two and a half months ago. You're looking at Ryan Thompson, who's a 31-year-old cast-off from the Tampa Bay Rays, a team that doesn't get pitching wrong, by the way, almost ever. And he latches on, had a phenomenal half a month or so with uh, the month of September with the Diamondbacks. I think he threw 13 innings in the regular season, and now he's pitched in four out of the five postseason games. You're talking about Kevin Ginkles, really the one piece that was consistent all the way through the season. This Diamondbacks bullpen, and really a lot of the team, is vastly different than they were in the month of June the last time they played the Phillies. Lots of runs scored in that seven games that these two teams have played against each other, by the way. I'll, I'll read you the results right here. Three to six, three to four, six to five, eight to nine, 15 to three, four to three, five to four. The least amount of runs scored by a team, either one of these teams in any of those games is three. So expect a lot of offense, especially the way that the Phillies have been hitting recently. And the Diamondbacks deserve that same moniker as well. Let's talk about the Philadelphia home field advantage thing. Because we all know Philly is one of the most hostile places to do anything, let alone being the villain in town for a few days, right? I know it's called the city of brotherly love, but that really only applies when you're brothers, right? (laughs) I mean, I've been to Philadelphia. I didn't necessarily feel brotherly love, probably because I wasn't there with a bunch of family or whatever. I'm I'm not beloved in the city like the Phillies are. The Diamondbacks aren't going to feel brotherly love while they're there. These two teams are certainly not brothers. Here's one of the issues. The Diamondbacks do not pitch well on the road this season, during the regular season in particular. A 4.81 ERA, a whip of 1.35. What does all this mean? Well, they, they were almost a full run worse on the road than they were at home. I think that plays a role in this. Uh, Four out of the five postseason games they've played, though, have been on the road. Two in Milwaukee. Two in L.A. Then the last one, obviously, at Chase Field the other day with 50,000 of your closest friends. So it's not like the Diamondbacks haven't played well on the road in the postseason. They have. They've played very, very well. Los Angeles is not an easy place to play either, by the way. The Dodgers had four more wins at home this season than the Phillies did. And the Phillies have one of the best home field advantages in baseball. So if you can overcome the Dodgers' home field advantage, why couldn't you overcome the Phillies? It's, It's a fair point. The Diamondbacks have been good on the road. It's just during the regular season, not so much. But sometimes recency matters, especially in the postseason. Pitching matchups. I think a lot of people were interested to know who was going to go in what games because we saw Merrill Kelly go in game one of the Dodgers series. We saw Zach Gallon in game two. Now they get four or five days off between the NLDS and the NLCS. So it was a question, it was a toss-up of whether you were going to throw Merrill Kelly or Zach Gallen in Game 1. We now have the answer to that. Tori Lavelle uh, basically revealing that Zach Gallen is going to be the number 1 starter. He's going to pitch Game 1 Monday night in Philadelphia against, more than likely, Zach Wheeler. I don't know if that's been officially announced, but I believe that uh, the manager, Rob Thompson, has basically said that this would be the order. So expect the Zachs on Monday. Zach Gallen versus Zach Wheeler. That means game two would be Merrill Kelly versus more than likely Aaron Nola 
Listen, Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler have both thrown for over 200 strikeouts this season. They've got great stuff. Nola's ERA is much higher this season. Four and a half runs, if I'm remembering correctly, um, per nine. So he's hittable. It's just he's going to strike out a lot of dudes. Then in game three, you come home on Thursday. Brandon Fott will most likely get that game three. I don't think that's been announced necessarily. Um, But the way that the postseason has shaken out, I mean, he pitched game one against Milwaukee and then he pitched this most recent game three against L.A. I don't know why he wouldn't get game three versus more than likely Ranger Suarez for the Philadelphia Phillies. Torrey said with Burns and Gamble yesterday that they will not pitch any of their top two starters on short rest. Now, they had the advantage against L.A. of the games being spread very far apart which gave them the opportunity to get semi-regular rest if they wanted to pitch somebody in Game 1 and Game 4. Merrill Kelly likely would have pitched Game 4 had they needed it. But they didn't need it. So now you get those four extra days. It's going to be a long time between Merrill Kelly's starts, by the way. We'll see how that impacts him. I don't think it'll impact him much at all. Merrill Kelly, as you guys know, he doesn't want to leave ball games. He's going to be in for the long haul, and he'll be frustrated no matter when he gets pulled from the game. That's just the nature of the beast with him. That, that's his competitive nature inside of him. I love that characteristic of him. And I think Zach Gallen feels the same way. He's maybe not as vocal about it, but um, it's interesting that Torrey decides to go with Gallen in game one. I don't think anybody's going to bat an eye at that. That makes sense to me. He was a Cy Young candidate throughout the season, um, and Merrill Kelly deserves to be in a comparable conversation. This is a 1A, 1B type thing. And honestly, I think it's pretty comparable to what the Phillies have going. I think Zach Wheeler's the better picture between him and Nola, but Nola is really the 1B. There's not a huge discrepancy here, similar to the Diamondbacks. Then you've got Brandon Fought in your third game. He's a rookie, but he's pitched very well so far in the postseason. I heard Torrey say yesterday, he even kind of admitted, like, that was kind of a weird deal where I pulled him in the fourth inning. All right, I guess it was the fifth inning. He was four, four and a third innings that uh, Brandon fought through in game three against the Dodgers. He only had two hits. He was untouchable for the majority of the time he was out there. And even Torrey, uh, talking with Burns and Campbell yesterday, he was like, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> that was weird that I pulled him in that game when I probably shouldn't have. And I thought that was an interesting admission. But he also acknowledged, you know, we had the matchups. We had to do what we had to do. And Joe Mantiply and the bullpen certainly picked up from there. What else could they do for game four, though, is the question. If you're not going to pitch Zach Gallon on short rest, what do you do in a possible game four? Well, it will. there will be a game four. If you're not going to pitch him on short rest, then you have a couple of options. And, and Torrey kept that close to the chest yesterday. But at the same time, we saw Tommy Henry uh, on social media pitching in a practice game. Because the Diamondbacks set up uh, with the team yesterday, they basically went out there and practiced, which I think is a smart idea because you hear all these conversations about the teams who got a bye week and they got cold and they just, I don't know, forgot how to play baseball. I hate the argument. Um, But it is your responsibility to stay hot, to stay warm, essentially, and to continue the momentum that you have, even though you have five days off in between games. So they ran a practice game at Chase Field, and they pumped in all this crowd noise. And there's Tommy Henry, who hasn't pitched in a long time, but was one of the most consistent pitchers they had throughout the course of the regular season. And he's pitching in a practice game. Is there some chance that he could show up in the next couple of weeks? 
Maybe more likely if they went on to the World Series. I don't know if there's time for Tommy Henry to come back onto the roster for the NLCS. Uh, But you can't tell me it's not at least a little bit interesting that Tommy Henry was out there in the practice game. What about a bullpen game? Could the Diamondbacks throw some relievers in game four? They certainly threw a couple bullpen games toward the end of the season in September, heading into the postseason. The Phillies are crushing lefties more so than righties this postseason. They're hitting 250 against righties and over 300 against lefties. So is there a righty in the Diamondbacks bullpen that you would throw? Would you throw Ryan Nelson, a guy who struggled this season? The numbers aren't great. He was a starter for the majority of the year. He was in the rotation for the majority of the year. Would you throw Ryan Nelson for two innings, three innings, as kind of a spot starter? Or would you throw Ryan Thompson, a guy who, yeah, he had a bit of a rough outing in Game 3, but ultimately has been fantastic for the Diamondbacks as a late-game, multi-inning reliever. Is that a guy you'd throw early? Would you throw Miguel Castro for an inning or two as a a, a guy who can maybe get you halfway or all the way through the, the lineup one time and then switch to a lefty like a Joe Mantiply? Could you do that? That seems to be another option for the Diamondbacks. It's going to be really interesting. This week is going to be one of the most fun that we've had, and I know that we've been having a really good week and a half with the D-backs. Um, I'm choosing to no longer look past this team, and I've been guilty of this, admittedly. I have critiqued and judged the Diamondbacks on what they can't do, what they don't have, and I'm done with that because they keep proving me wrong. So let's talk about what the Diamondbacks can do and what they're good at. Now, we know they're undefeated in this postseason so far, but I do have one very nitpicky thing about them that I think might work against them when it comes to the series with the Phillies. We're going to talk about that next. Steve Zinsmeister in with you on Arizona Sports Saturday on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. I drive deep right field, back at the warning track, back at the wall, touch them all, Geraldo Perdomo. And a high fly ball, deep right field, no doubt about this, 2-0 Diamondbacks, home run Marte. The drive to left, that ball might go, that ball's gone. How about this inning, home run out, home run out, home run. And a shot to left center field, back she goes, are you kidding me? Gabby Marino hits it out anyway, and it's 4 nothing Diamondbacks. Never been done before in MLB postseason history. You heard Greg Schulte on the call for what I'm calling the inning, where the Arizona Diamondbacks hit four home runs, four solo shots nonetheless, in that inning. Never done before. Listen, this is great. We should all be thanking our lucky stars, right? I mean, the way that they beat the Dodgers, not to, not only did, was it a big deal to beat the Dodgers, but to sweep them and to do it two games in L.A. and then to do it in the way you did it. Scoring 11 runs in that first game, which included knocking Clayton Kershaw out of the game in the first inning. He wasn't even out of the first inning yet. To then 
jump all over Bobby Miller, the rookie, in Game 2. And then for Lance Lynn to celebrate on his way off the mound in Game 3 in inning number 2. And then the very next inning, come out and hit four home runs off of him. Not only did you beat the Dodgers, you shut up Dodger fans. You sent them home. I think a big part of the reason that the fans at Chase Field on Wednesday, or was that Wednesday night? Yeah, Wednesday night's game three. I think a big reason why there were so many Diamondbacks fans and not very many Dodger fans is because of the way you beat them in the first two games. Dodger fans didn't want to be there to watch their team get blown out in that series. Why would you want to go to that? There wasn't a lot of life left. The heartbeat was real, real low, real, real low. Was there a chance they could have won three games in a row? Yeah, absolutely. And the Dodgers are that kind of team that they could they could pull off three wins in a row at any time throughout the course of this season. But man, they were on life support. And the Diamondbacks came up huge. But here's where I'm going to get really nitpicky. Because it's hard to complain about a team that's 5-0 and in the postseason, won four of their five games on the road. There's not a lot wrong with the Diamondbacks right now. But here's my very specific thing that could work against them. They haven't faced a lot of adversity in the series with the Dodgers. They never trailed. They played from ahead almost the entire series. Now, I get it. That's a good thing. That, that Listen, I would take that any day of the week over the alternative. But they never had to claw their way back into a game. They did it in Milwaukee, by the way. Both of those games, they were down early in the game. They had to fight their way back in and then hold on to the lead. Those were those were tough earned wins. And I'm not saying that the Dodger games weren't tough. It's just, let's be honest, when you go up significantly in the first couple of innings, you're playing from ahead. Again, you're playing with house money at that point. You're just trying to protect it. It's easy. You just don't put as much money down on the table at the casino. I mean, that's that's the way to win ball games that you're ahead in. What will they do when they need to climb back into games against the Phillies? I think that's a legitimate question. The Diamondbacks only scored three runs in the Dodgers series after the third inning. Think about that. Because that inning I just played you with the four home runs, that was the third inning of game three. They scored a ton of runs off Kershaw in inning number one in game one. And they jumped on Bobby Miller early in game two. After the third inning in this series, they scored three runs total. That's one per game if you're going to average it out. Once they got a lead, the bats disappeared. Now, unfortunately, they didn't need a ton of insurance runs at that point. But for two-thirds of the innings played in this series, the Diamondbacks' bats were hardly existent. That's at least a little bit concerning to me. The Phillies are doing a much better job of the quote-unquote creating chaos that the Diamondbacks always talk about. Because throughout the course of the regular season, creating chaos to us was, it was a mantra. It was what Tori Lovello had said about, you know, we're going to get on base any way we can. If it's a walk, great. If we get hit by the pitch, great. If we get a base hit, great. We're not a power hitting team. Really outside of Christian Walker, there wasn't really a great power hitter on this ball club. Lourdes Gurriel had a, had a shortage of power last season before coming over to Arizona. The outfield, we didn't know what we were going to get in a full season of Corbin Carroll. Turns out it was pretty darn good, but he packs a wall up in that small body. But at the same time, they don't have a ton of power hitters. 
So their version of offense throughout the whole regular season was creating chaos on the base pads. Swipe a bag here, drop down a bunt here, uh, swipe another bag, maybe go from first to third instead of just first to third, or first to third instead of first to second. We're going to score from first base on occasion. Drop third strike, I'm on first base. That's not a guaranteed out anymore. That's what the chaos was supposed to be. And for the majority of the regular season, it was. The chaos looks a lot different than it did in the regular season now all of a sudden. When you're hitting all these home runs, the Diamondbacks have 13 home runs in the postseason. That's tied with the Phillies, ironically, for the most for a team in the postseason right now. The Phillies have also played one more game than the Diamondbacks did, so that should tell you something too. It just looks different. Where did all this power come from? And is it sustainable? I'm not saying it's not, but you're getting contributions over the fence from guys like Geraldo Perdomo hit that first home run, for instance, in that, what I'm calling, the inning. He hits the first. You know the last time Geraldo Perdomo hit a home run? May. He hit, I think, six in the regular season. And he started it off, to his credit, in that postseason game. Without that home run, I don't think they hit the other three. Then there's, let's see, Gabby Moreno hit seven, if I'm remembering correctly, during the regular season. Hit seven home runs. Great hitter, not a power hitter. It's not Mike Piazza out there. He's a high average catcher. He hit seven home runs during the regular season. He has three in the postseason already in five games. I'm not saying that it's not sustainable. It's just fair to question whether it is or not. And we haven't even looked at the Phillies pitching staff yet. We're just talking about what the Diamondbacks have already accomplished. Now, there's still some of that other chaos that they've been creating on the base pads. They've still stolen a a number of bases. I think it's like seven throughout the course of the postseason. Um, But they've also been thrown out on the bags three times, which is more than any other team in the postseason so far. So they're trying to create that chaos on the base pads. But for the most part, the damage they've done has been through power hitting, And really good timing. And I just wonder if maybe they're going to have to win a couple of games the old-fashioned way that they were doing it in the regular season. The way that, quite frankly, they needed to do it against the Brewers here and there in the wildcard series. Looking at the Philadelphia Phillies stats, specifically this postseason, there are some guys that can bop. Trey Turner has the most incredible resurgence this season that maybe I've seen in a long time. Maybe since, maybe the best second half I've seen, like Manny Ramirez had a great second half when he got traded to L.A. J.D. Martinez when he became a D-back in 2017. Trey Turner right now, he went from being awful in the first half to all of a sudden he had a great second half and he's having a stellar postseason. He has 12 hits in six games. He's good for two hits a night. Right now, four doubles, two home runs. Uh, he's also walked twice. He's stolen four bases. He's the speed that they've got for the most part. He's the fastest player they have. He's hitting 500, so he's getting a hit every other at bat. His OPS is over 1.4. That's insane. Want to talk about high OPSs? Want to talk about power hitters? They got a couple of those too. Nick Castellanos already has four home runs in the postseason. He's tied with Jordan Alvarez for the most. Castellanos just can't stop hitting home runs. He just can't. And he's completely indifferent to how anybody cares about him. <laughs> Did you see his post-game interviews where they were asking him questions and, and he's like, I, can I just go celebrate? 
I- I'm done with this. I just want to go be with my team. I-, I don't really want to talk to you guys. I hit home runs for a living. It's what I do. Uh, Bryce Harper. This guy can take over a postseason by himself. We've seen him do it before. He appears to want to do it again. Three home runs, five RBIs. He's hitting 368 in the postseason. He's on base over 500, which means 50% of the time he's going to end up on one of the bases, maybe even home plate. JT Real Muto, one of the best catchers in the game of baseball. Bryson Stott is a name you might not be super familiar with. He's already got seven RBIs in only six games. So that guy, despite hitting 238 in the postseason, has been an impact player for them. Alec Bohm is hitting 190, but is still on base 32% of the time. That's remarkable. He's got great plate discipline. Kyle Schwarber is, I don't know how he finished the season, but he hit under 200 and had more homers than singles at one point during the, late in the season. I don't know if he finished the year that way. And we know what Kyle Schwarber is capable of. Remember when he was one of the best hitters on the planet in the 2016 World Series, let alone what he's accomplished since. This is the kind of lineup that is devastating to a pitching staff. Absolutely devastating. And we're going to dive into it more as we get throughout the show. Last week, the Cardinals could not handle Jamar Chase. So this week, how are they going to handle one of the best receiver tandems in the NFL? We're going to ask our Cardinals expert next. Mitch Veraldis. Meister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Hey, thanks for checking out the show on this Saturday afternoon. Steve Zinsmeister with you. Mitch is out sick today. All the best to him. We hope to see him back next week. Uh, last week was not a great week for the Arizona Cardinals secondary, giving up major yardage and three touchdowns to the best player, one of the best receivers in the league, granted, Jamar Chase. For the Bengals. Well, if they struggled so much with him, how are they supposed to handle a great tandem that the Rams have? Let's get that question answered. He's Tyler Drake. He's our Cardinals insider at ArizonaSports.com uh, and also on the Cardinals Corner podcast. Hey, Tyler, how are you, sir? I'm doing all right, man. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, maybe a little bit better than the uh, Cardinals secondary. Talk to me about what we saw from Jamar Chase last week and how you stop that from happening again with Cooper Cup and now Puka Nakua, who's one of the biggest steals and it appears in the entire league. How do you stop them from doing what he did last week? Yeah, that's the uh, that's the million dollar question, I think, man. Last week, obviously, we saw that. Marco Wilson, I think, gets a lot of that uh, blame, to be honest, just because he was on him a lot of the day. But for the for the whole side of the defense, that secondary, they all took accountability for what happened. And, and yeah, I mean, we asked Jonathan Gannon point blank this week, you know, what does this – do you feel like you need to challenge the secondary? Do they need any kind of pep talk? And he said – they know explicitly what needs to get done. And I think the first thing is making sure they nail down the little things, the little details. I mean, Cooper Cup, we, everybody knows how big his route tree is, and he's going to be a problem for sure. Puka Nakua, like you said, I mean, rookie sensation. He is easily probably the steal of the draft right now. And, I mean, he's setting records like crazy, and he really is solid. And, and I think it really goes back to Matthew Stafford, who's getting these guys the ball. But – yeah, it's it's going to take a group effort. It's going to be a collective effort. They still they've and especially now without Buda Baker and on top of that Jalen Thompson who's out with the hamstring issues. So it's going to fall a lot on these guys. I mean, Antonio Hamilton might very well play a lot of safety or a lot of slot this week and have Keetrell Clark up and he might start again. So 
it's I, I'm very interested to see how they really get creative with throwing these guys in there because they are down some really big pieces in that secondary against arguably their toughest test in a wide receiver standpoint with those two guys. Yeah, on the latest injury report, Jalen Thompson out, eight different players listed as questionable. Which other guy who is questionable, which one of them would hurt the most to be without this week? Hmm, let's see. I believe Jonathan Ledbetter was still questionable if I'm not Yeah, mistaken. he's on the list. Yeah, I would say probably him, man. I just think they really need some, they need that, that defensive line is at its best when they have some guys that they can rotate in and, Jonathan Ledbetter has proven that he is a really big piece of this defense. So I think if they can really get him back, that would be a huge step forward in that regard. But obviously, it's just going to be a tough go. And I think another one would be Marquise Hollywood-Brown. If he's not, uh, he's dealing with an illness, if he's not fully ready to go, that's going to be another big one. I think Michael Wilson could easily step up and take more reps. I think he deserves to get more targets. But losing a guy like Marquise Brown, who has really produced since the season began would be a tough blow. And, and it sounds like he's on the up and up just talking with Drew Terrell, the passing game coordinator, wide receivers coach on Friday. He liked what he saw from the week of Hollywood. So it's really going to come down to how's he feeling today and going into game day uh, and going into the game tomorrow. Yeah. I think a lot of people, myself included, were surprised to see the, how few targets Michael Wilson got a week after getting two touchdowns in a game. Uh, we're talking with Tyler Drake, our Cardinals insider at Arizona sports. Uh, talk to me about the running game. James Connor goes to the IR. What will the running attack look like? And do Connor's carries get passed down to one guy or do they split it up and go running back by committee? Yep. Yep. That's the, uh, that's the other million dollar question, man. You're getting all of them. You're getting all of them today. I got tons of questions. Uh, not I a have, lot of answers. I have talked to more fantasy football owners and people that are more in the fantasy world than, than I am more times than I think I have in the whole last year, just with this week of who's going to play, who's going to start, who's going to get more touches. And all I can say, it's going to come down to Amari Demarcado and Keontae Ingram. I think Amari showed enough last week to, to get that first look at least, to get that first carry, to really see if he can keep that momentum going from last week and scoring his first career touchdown. And he's already been utilized in the past game. He's He's been solid in pass protection. They really like what they're seeing out of him. Offensive coordinator Drew Petzing, he said he doesn't even act like he's a rookie. Uh, same thing with Jonathan Gannon. They just love his work ethic, and he's always on top of things. And with Keontae, you know, he's been the number two guy. He's listed on the depth chart right now as the number one guy with Connor out, but he's had to deal with that neck injury. So I think they might slow roll him a little bit, just getting back after missing a couple games. But in my eyes, it's Demarcado first and Keontae. But obviously, if it's not working with Demarcado, I think they're really good. they're going to be quick with seeing what they can get out of Keontae with him being healthy now. And also, I think we all need to, to, you know, keep in mind, they could easily elevate a guy like Damon Williams if they, he's proven enough that he's got the playbook down and can really be a factor. And, I mean, regardless if he can do anything on the offensive side of things, but be a special teams asset as well. So a couple of things to watch there. And obviously, Tony Jones is up too. So it'll be very interesting to see. But I think at the beginning of the day, it's going to come down to Demarcado, Keontae Ingram. I think when a lot of Cardinals fans think of the Rams, they think of Aaron Donald, and fairly so. He's been the most dominant defensive lineman, certainly. Maybe you can make an argument for most dominant player in the league over the last decade or so. Uh, is It's always an intimidating challenge, but with less talent around him on that roster this year than in past years, is it as simple as just putting more blockers on Aaron Donald? You know, that's, that's kind of how I thought 
coming into the week. Obviously, the Rams still, I mean, it's the NFL. If you got guys playing, they deserve to be there. They've done enough to show that they should be in that spot. But that's, that's how I felt entering the week and how Jonathan Gannon and really all the guys, coaching staff, players, they gave the defense outside of Aaron Donald a lot of credit of just, I think a lot of teams, a lot of I, I, me especially, I didn't think the Rams were going to be as good as they are now. And that's not saying they're world beaters, but I expected them to be even worse than the Cardinals. So what they're doing now, I think, is exceeding a lot of expectations. And, and I mean, they're right there in the mix. They could maybe turn some things around, win a couple of big games and, and make some noise later in the year. But I think it really comes down to they found the right pieces to work around Aaron Donald because Aaron Donald is Aaron Donald. You don't have to worry about what he's going to bring. And I think they're kind of focusing in on bringing the right guys. It's almost, it's almost like the Suns with DeAndre Ayton. They got rid of Ayton, who is probably a better player than Nurkic, but Nurkic fits the team better. So I think they're almost taking some, something similar to that of, hey, we need to build around this guy with guys who may not scream you know, stars on paper, but they are contributing to the point where they can still be effective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're talking to Tyler Drake. He's our Cardinals insider at Arizona Sports. What's the absolute latest on Kyler Murray? Any predictions on when he could be back? Well, I will tell you, my week eight prediction is slowly, slowly, slowly dying a slow death. That, that, <laughs> that is what I can tell you right now. I just It feels like we're still at least three, four weeks away. Uh, I mean, he's not on the, off the pup list yet. And when he comes off of that, that would mean three. he has a three-week practice window. So in my eyes, if he's not back, if they don't feel – if they don't activate him, he's still at least three weeks away. So right now, that would what? Week nine would be a maybe return week nine? Who knows? I don't know. I still think there's a, there's a chance he could come back week eight, but I think he's got to get activated after this week for that to, for that to happen for sure. Uh, but from what we've got from Jonathan Gannon, it's still mentally, physically ready to, to go. They're going to play him. So uh, I wish I could tell you more, but that's about all I got for you, buddy. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty good answer for an impossible question. And I, I knew it kind of was on the way in. Uh, in the meantime, how are you feeling about Josh Dobbs and how the job that he's done filling in, considering the fact that he was only here a week before they asked him to start a game? Yeah, yeah. I think he's done a, a really admirable job just stepping in and, and not only – doing it on the field, but, but off the field as well, man, he just seems like he's really gelling. He's really a a good part of, of what's the cohesiveness of what this locker room is right now. I think he's a big part of that. And, and he just is a positive dude. And that's what you need in that locker room right now. And, and obviously a lot of these guys are bought in, everybody's bought in a lot of young guys chomping at the bit. I had a great conversation with BJ Ojolari, which you can find that on ArizonaSports.com. But yeah, Joshua Dobbs, man, I, I'm very impressed with how he's hung in there and, and just his mentality. I think cleaning up the turnovers is a really big thing. And we saw that, you know, we saw that in week one, we saw that last week needs to get cleaned up and he'll be the first person to say it. And just from not only him talking, but just from his players, his teammates, Michael Wilson loves, loves working with the guy and just the coaching staff. You can tell why they, you know, shelled out a fifth round pick to bring him in and, and give him that starting nod right, right away. So while the stats and while the wins and law or while the wins aren't really there, he's doing, I think the right things to help drew petting along to the point where when Kyler can come back, it can be a nice transition, drop him in and, and use that same kind of offense we're seeing right now with Doc. Fair enough. You can read all of his stuff at ArizonaSports.com. His name is Tyler Drake, and he is our Cardinals insider. Thanks, Ty. I'm going to pick up DeMarcado uh, per your recommendation, and then if he doesn't do anything, I'm going to hold you to it, all right? 
Yeah, yeah, I feel like everybody's going to be uh, going that way. But, hey, real quick, uh, we got yeah. a special Cardinals Corner coming tomorrow. I've got a new co-host. We've nailed it down. So, Oh, his phone cut out right when he was about to say something about the co-host. Are you still there? Okay. All right, we lost Tyler Drake. But, man, that's a heck of a tease right there. Cardinals Corner Podcast is going to have a brand new co-host starting you definitely tomorrow. definitely draw me here. Yeah, it's not me. I know it's not me. It's not Trev. So I, I don't know. We definitely uh, are on the hook for that. So thanks so much to Tyler Drake, Arizona Cardinals insider for Arizona sports. Um, looking forward to that as well as tomorrow's game. How do the Cardinals secondary, how do they hold up against one of the most odd, uh, surprising receiver tandems in the entire league? Cooper Cup is back and Puka Nakua, one of the most fun names and one of the most fun players in the league this season. Uh, facing the Arizona Cardinals at an interesting time where you've got not a lot going on in that secondary. All right, coming up next, everything DeAndre Ayton says irks me. I'll tell you what he said this time next. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Well, Mitch is out today. Steve Zinsmeister here with you on Arizona Sports Saturday. Just got off the phone with our Cardinals insider, Tyler Drake. Um, lots of big storylines heading into this week. No James Conner, who's been kind of the bell cow running back for this team. Um, he came into the organization, what was that, last season or the year before, where he was basically splitting carries and not anymore, but now he's on IR. So what do you do? Um, an interesting conversation there also about Cooper Cup and Puka Nakua and how you stop those guys, especially a week after Jamar Chase had, what was it, 19 targets, 15 catches, I think it was, 192 yards and three touchdowns. That's unacceptable if you're the Cardinals defense. Um, so it was good catching up with Tyler Drake. He even dropped a little bit of a spoiler, uh, a little bit of a tease there that he's got a new co- uh, co-host on the Cardinals Corner podcast. And uh, I found out who it is. Oh, really? I've got sources. I've got sauces. Sauces? Like Gambo, yeah. I feel pretty... I'm not going to report it. I'm going to leave it to Tyler to to bring that out on his episode. But man, I'm excited about it. Yeah, because off air, we ran through quite a few names. I had some theories, but he, he blew me out of the water. He really did. So you're going to want to check out this week's Cardinals Corner podcast with uh, Tyler Drake and his new secret co-host. <laughs> Let's talk about the Suns and DeAndre Ayton for a second. Who is not a son, so I guess we're not fully talking about the Suns right now. He doesn't want to talk about the Suns. He's on the Trailblazers now, play in the preseason, and of course the media wants to know, DeAndre, uh, any thoughts on playing your former team? Bear with me, this audio is a little difficult to hear because for some reason they only let us talk to NBA players at practice where there's basketballs bouncing everywhere and the audio is terrible. It's the worst possible environment to interview someone but it's how we get them. Uh, DeAndre Ayton asked, hey, uh, how about playing your former team? Any thoughts about tomorrow night? Your old team? There's no thoughts at all. There's no thoughts at all, is what DeAndre Ayton says. DeAndre spent a lot of time though in Phoenix. How can there not be how can there not be any thoughts, the reporter says. You played there a long time. They're the team that drafted you, number one overall. How can you... I love that question, by the way. That's a great follow-up. Hey, how can you not have any thoughts? Are you crazy? Are you not human? You have to have some sort of opinion, right? They told me I was going to talk about the game I played yesterday. I don't want to talk about Phoenix. They told me I was going to talk about the game I did yesterday, the game I played yesterday. 
Boy, that is not the way to uh, endear yourself to the uh, fan base. But listen, I understand where DeAndre Ayton is coming from. He doesn't want to talk about the Suns because the Suns didn't want him here anymore. I can understand that. This team's been exploring getting rid of DeAndre Ayton for years. There were rumors, remember a couple years ago, there were rumors about trading him for Demonis Sabonis in Indiana. Then Indiana is the team, the Pacers, signed the offer sheet for his max deal in the next offseason. And then the Suns, of course, not willing to let him go for nothing, they match the offer sheet, basically forcing Aiton to stay in Phoenix when really Indiana wanted him more, in my opinion. Aiton made it sound like he had the worst time ever in Phoenix, by the way. He got drafted first overall. Phoenix did that. He didn't have to go number one, by the way. They could have taken Luka Doncic, who had closer ties to their coach at the time, Igor Kokoshkov. They could have done that. They could have taken Marvin Bagley, who was a local kid as well. But they went with the guy who went to high school in, in, in the Valley, in Aiton, and went to U of A. You're welcome. You got picked first overall. He got a max contract. Granted, it happened in a kind of weirdly controversial way where he had to sign with someone else in order to get it here. But he still got all the money in the world. When I don't think he's worth it. He went to the NBA Finals with the Suns team, something that I don't think he'll ever do with the Trailblazers, just my opinion. It's not like he had a rough go at it in Phoenix. Sure, the fan base wanted more out of you. Sure, uh, we all had expectations that maybe you didn't live up to, but you were a pretty good player in Phoenix. You were on a great team in Phoenix eventually. I know it took some time, but they got there. You had great teammates in Chris Paul and Devin Booker who held you accountable. You got to touch the ball a lot. He made it sound like like Phoenix, they're dead to me. They never did nothing to, nothing for me. They wanted me gone. Your time in Phoenix was pretty darn good. It's almost, it's almost like that ex you don't want to talk about no more. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's exactly right, Trev. He's talking about him like he's, they're their ex. Like, you get to the point where you refuse to even acknowledge that that ex even exists. Yeah, yeah. You're like, I don't remember that time in my life. Nope. Uh, what was her name again? Uh, nope, that doesn't ring a bell. I remember those vacations we went to and... <laughs> nope. I don't even remember. I've never been to San Francisco. Oh, you have a picture of us at Alcatraz? No. Nope, don't recall that. Probably deleted it off his Facebook and everything. <laughs> yeah, who? Never heard of them. The Suns? Eh, doesn't ring a bell. Remember a couple weeks ago, Aiton said that it sounded like, uh, uh, he said, um, the Suns finally fulfilled my request, basically insinuating that he had asked to be traded and that they followed through and traded him. When, according to Gambo, that was never true. He never made a request to be traded. Maybe he wanted out of Phoenix because of countless things. There was the fight with Monty after uh, Game 7 against the Mavericks. There yep. was, uh, I'm not getting the ball enough. I'm not a part of the offense as much as I want to be. Now we've got Kevin Durant, and he's got to get touches. Now we've got Bradley Beal. He's got to get touches. Where do I fit into all this? I get why he wanted out. And they've wanted, they've at least explored the idea of getting rid of him for a long time. I get all that. But don't act like you asked to be traded and they came through for you. They made that move for them. And then to be like, oh, I'm dominating. That's my nickname. That's what people call me. I never once heard people call him that. I've seen it on his Instagram. Never once heard somebody call him dominating. He's like, all I do is dominate. Hate to break it to you, bud, but if all you did was dominate, you'd still be in a son's uniform. And we probably would have a title. And probably we would have a title. Fair point. Things weren't as bad for Aiton in Arizona as he seems to 
think that they were. I, I get that relationships go sour. I get that sometimes you just got to break up and, and move on. I get it. But he makes it sound like Phoenix was the worst for him. And I got to tell you, he's got a max contract. He got picked number one overall. He played on a competitive team. He played with teammates that are some of the best in the league. I don't know how much better it's going to get in Portland. I mean, some people think the grass is green on the other side, so we're going to see. I guess. Coming up next, now that the D-backs are eight wins away from a championship, do they have new expectations to live up to? We're going to dive into that. Steve Zinsmeister with you on Arizona Sports Saturday on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader.